Chapter 3 Big Business and the Money Power Business, that is the whole material side of life, is threatened by two classes of people who think they are in opposition, but who actually have a common cause, the professional financier and the professional reformer. Both go about the destruction of business, that is what they have in common. Their ways are not alike, their motives are not alike, but, given a free hand, either can destroy business very quickly. There is nothing to be said against the financier, the man who really understands the management of money and its place in life. There is nothing to be said against the reformer, who knows what he is about, and knows the effects of the changes he desires, and who is willing to give the people to be reformed a chance. But it is very different with the professional financier, who finances for the sake of financing, and what he can get out of it in money, without a thought of the welfare of the people. The professional reformer, likewise, reforms for the sake of reforming, and for his own satisfaction, and without a thought of the real welfare of the people. These two classes are real menaces. The professional financiers wrecked Germany. The professional reformers wrecked Russia. You can take your choice as to who made the better job of it. These two classes, working either directly or through politicians, are in control of Europe and are responsible for its poverty. The League of Nations and all its adjuncts, such as the World Court, are in their control, and under no system which they devise do the people have a chance, especially as they are opposed to any theory of industry which makes for the general welfare. The people abroad are content to take sops in the form of resolutions and treaties, but presently people everywhere will learn to disregard the teachings of both professional financiers and professional reformers, just as we have learned to disregard them here in the United States. They will go forward on principles of real economy, and will learn that there is no connection between real business and the money power, and that attacking business in order to reach the money power is merely playing into the hands of the financiers. The notion that money is the lifeblood of business, and that if you can control money, you can control business, has just enough foundation to make it seem real, because we have to express in dollars what are not dollars at all. Take the Ford Industries. For accounting and tax purposes, they have to be valued in dollars according to recognized modes of procedure. Thus, the Ford Industries are supposed to be worth some large sums, and those figures are printed. Nine out of ten men think that we have that number of dollars somewhere on the premises. We have nothing of the kind. We have our power plants, furnaces, lathes, drill presses, coal mines, iron mines, and so on. We have the physical equipment to manufacture automobiles and tractors, and some raw material to work with. As a going concern, the worth of all this equipment depends on the skill of the management. Who can say what a chest of tools is worth to a carpenter on a job? Take four furnaces, fifty stamping machines, a conveyor system, a dozen annealing ovens, a pile of coal, elevators, trucks, buildings, irons, and wood and sand, the actual physical inventory of a place. You never see that inventory expressed as things. It is always in dollars. There are no dollars there as dollars. There are furnaces, machinery, ovens, trucks, elevators, materials, and buildings. These things are valuable. They are intrinsically more valuable than dollars. 
That is, if you shoveled a building full of dollars, you would not have the same capacity for production and use as you would have if you filled that same building with machinery and an organization of human skill. On a tax sheet, however, all this mechanical capacity is put down as dollars, and on that basis a certain number of dollars are demanded of it. More than one business has been destroyed by taxes levied under the impression that its assets were in dollars. That is only one of the collateral effect of thinking of things as dollars instead of as things. We must learn to drive through all our thinking the profound distinction between finance and business. This is the country of big business. But, as previously shown, big business controls nothing. It is entirely at the mercy of public demand. It is amazing how few seem able to distinguish between industry and finance. In the violent period of the union labor movement, the employer was always referred to as the capitalist. The whole trouble was that the employer was not a capitalist, but was under the thumb of capitalists. In those years, most businesses were conducted on borrowed capital, which gave the capitalist a super-control of the industry. The manufacturer, standing between hostile labor and rapacious capital, had a hard time getting anything done. Pressed from above for interest and dividends, pushed from below to grant more money for less work, he had small chance to give service. And all the time he had to bear the abuse that was being heaped upon the capitalist. But a change has come. Business does not minimize the service which the world of finance can render, but it has declared itself free from domination by that world. When finance exists to serve industry, which is its proper function, then finance is recognized as part of the service instrument of humanity. Twenty-five years ago, we heard a great deal about big business. There was really no big business twenty-five years ago. What we had was our first mergers of money. Money is not business. Big money cannot make big business. Men of money, foreseeing the approach of the industrial era, sought to seize and control it by means of their pooled capital. And for a time, the country rang with their exploits. Money brokers are seldom good businessmen. Speculators cannot create values. However, the idea got abroad that money had grabbed everything, and that money controlled everything. Go back in mind twenty-five years, then count the big businesses existing now which did not exist then, which big money did not bring into existence, and which big money does not now control, to see how untrue is the assumption that we live under a super-control. For centuries, with marvelous forethought, certain hereditary groups have manipulated a large part of the gold of the world, not all of it, but a controlling margin, especially in Europe, where they have used their power to make war or peace. Their power is not in their gold, because there is no power in gold. Their power is in their control of people's ideas with regard to gold. It is not any enslavement to gold that menaces, but the enslavement of the people to a certain idea of gold. Money control does exist, not the control of mankind by money, but the control of money by a group of money brokers. At one time, this meant the control of mankind by money. But now, with the growth of real industry, money is slowly receding to its proper place as one of the cogs in the wheel 
not as the wheel itself. No money trust today controls the American worker or the creator, the men who with hand or brain serve society in a productive way. Well, this is not to say that money and profits are not necessary in business. Business must be run at a profit. Well, this will be taken up in a subsequent chapter. Else it will die. But when anyone attempts to run a business solely for profit and thinks not at all of the service to the community, then also the business must die, for it no longer has a reason for existence. The profit motive, although it is supposed to be hard-headed and practical, is really not practical at all, because, as has been explained, it has as its objectives the increasing of prices to the consumer and the decreasing of wages, and therefore it constantly narrows its markets and eventually strangles itself. That accounts for much of the difficulty abroad. There, business is largely controlled by professional financiers, and the men in actual charge of operations have little indeed to say about management. The worker is not expected to be able to buy what he makes, and he is further fooled by the reformers, who tell him that his way out is through higher wages and shorter hours. He wants exactly what the professional financier wants, that is, something for nothing. And thus, without knowing it, the financiers and reformers combine to destroy business as an instrument of service. That is why we hear so much talk in foreign countries of the necessity for export trade. The home market is not built up through the payment of high wages for well-managed work which will result in low price to the consumer. The worker is a consumer of only a few meager necessities of life. This need not be so. We have demonstrated through our own industries in nearly every part of the world that it need not be so, as will later be brought out. I have no doubt that the workers in the Ford industries in the United States own more automobiles than are owned in the whole world outside of this country. There is no accident in this, nor is it due to the natural resources of the United States. Power can be made plentiful almost anywhere. Great Britain has plenty of coal and some water power. The continental countries have either coal or water power or both. They all would have plenty of raw materials if the fences erected by the tools of the financiers were taken down. But raw material is not nearly as important a factor as it once was. We are, every day, learning to use less and less raw material by adding to its strength. One of these days, steel and iron will no longer be on a tonnage basis, but on a strength basis. This is one of the most important of our developments, and also... We are learning that a great deal of material that has served its purpose can be reclaimed and reworked. But that, too, is a matter for another chapter. The reason why Europe thinks that it cannot manage without export is that the professional reformers, coming from below, and the professional financiers, coming from above, have together squeezed the buying power out of the people. And the industries are forced to look abroad for markets. Having exploited their own people, they seek to exploit other nations. There could easily be a healthy trading between nations. There need be no vicious competition, the kind of competition that brings on war. If the home market is built up, and everywhere in the world this can be done, then the export trade will be the natural and healthy exchange of commodities which one country can spare and another need. The present competition in the world markets is due largely to the exploitation of the people at home. It becomes plain, therefore, 
that to confuse business with the money power is to make one thing of two, and to unite elements which naturally oppose each other. A business cannot serve both the public and the money power. As a matter of fact, the money power has always lived more by exploiting or wrecking business than by the service of business. There are signs, however, that this may be on the mend. Money put into business, as a lien on its assets, is dead money. When industry operates wholly by the permission of dead money, its main purpose becomes the production of payments for the owners of that money. The service of the public has to be secondary. If quality of goods jeopardizes these payments, then the quality is cut down. If full service cuts into payments, then service is cut down. This kind of money does not serve business. It seeks to make business serve it. Money that takes no risk in an industry but demands its toll, whether there be profit or loss, is not live money. It is not wholeheartedly in the business as a part of it. It is a dead weight, and the sooner the business is rid of it, the better. Dead money is not a working partner, but an idle charge. Live money goes into the business to work and to share with the business. It is there to be used. It shares whatever losses there may be. It is an asset to the last penny and never a liability. Live money in a business is usually accompanied by the active labor of the man or men who put it there. Dead money is a sucker plant. The principle of the service of business to the people has gone far in the United States, and it will spread through and remake the world. It was not the war, but the seeming impossibility of restoring conditions as they were before the war that gave men the first inkling of the lesson they are to learn. They would have accepted the war as an accident or as a mistake had they not been made to see that the war was but the symptom of a deeper malady. The old tricks have failed. The old wisdom has proved foolishness. The old motives are ineffective. If losing a false wisdom and finding a new beginning of learning is progress, then we may say that the world has progressed. Its old principles are disproved by experience. Progress is not marked by a definite boundary across which we step, but by an attitude and an atmosphere. Everything false does not vanish at a given moment, and everything true appear. Some men know, and many others feel, that business is something more than money, that money is a commodity and not a power. Any business is as good as finished when it begins to finance. It is sometimes necessary, although always dangerous, to get money for extensions, except out of profits, and there may be emergencies when additional cash is required. But this is very different from financing for the sake of financing, using the business to make money through finance instead of through service. The danger point of any business is not when it needs money, but when it becomes successful enough to be financed, to be a foundation for a great pile of stocks and bonds. The public is gullible and may easily be taken advantage of. For instance, a certain amount of the stock of the Ford Motor Company of Canada is on the market. It could be bought for about $485 a share. Some exploiters bought up a few shares, and against each share issued 100 of what they called banker's shares at $10 each. That is, they sold for $1,000 what they had bought for $485. And the strange part is that the public fell into the trap and freely paid $2 for something which they could have bought themselves for a dollar. That shows how easy it is 
to turn a successful business into a financial tool. Thus, it is just when an industry becomes most widely useful that its strongest testing comes. The money power will point the way of large stock issues, of profits made out of paper instead of production, of easy gains by mixing water with true worth. This is a temptation to which many concerns succumb, under the delusion that it is business. It is not business at all, but only a method of slow suicide. Think, if you can, of a single great industry operating today that was deliberately created and fostered by the money power. Every big business began lowly, grew because it filled a want, and if it attracted the attention of the money power at all, it was only after growth had been attained. A business which can bring itself to the point where it attracts the attention of money should be able to continue on its own feet without being financed. Another rock on which business breaks is debt. Debt is nowadays an industry. Luring people into debt is an industry. The advantages of debt have become almost a philosophy. Possibly it is true that many people, if not most, would bestir themselves very little were it not for the pressure of debt obligations. If so, they are not free men and will not work from free motives. The debt motive is basically a slave motive. When business goes into debt, it owes a divided allegiance. The scavengers of finance, when they wish to put a business out of the running or secure it for themselves, always begin with the debt method. Once on that road, the business has two masters to serve, the public and the speculative financier. It will scrimp the one to serve the other, and the public will be hurt, for debt leaves no choice of allegiance. Business has freed itself from domineering finance by keeping within itself its earnings. Business that exists to feed profits to people who are not engaged and never will be engaged in it stands on a false basis. This is being so well understood that it has become a part of the creed of commerce that the service of business is wholly to the public and that the profits of business are due first to the business itself as a serviceable instrument of humanity and then to the people whose labor and contributions of energy make the business a going concern. But neither business nor finance has power to compel the public to buy here or buy there. The record of financiers in business affairs is full of disaster. If finance had the far-flung power that alarmists say it has, America, like Europe, would be filled with ragged peasants. But here, the service of business always has controlled and always will control. Money does not control wheat, coal, and other essentials of life. How can it? It does not create them. There are twice as many coal mines open as we can possibly use. Until a little while ago, wheat was a drug on the market. Money does not own the coal in the United States. Money does not own the farms or the farmers. Money, following its traditional policy, would make coal scarce. Here we have it plentifully. Money would make wheat scarce. The world is piled with wheat. But while you can always go out and buy an automobile, you cannot always go out and buy a ton of coal. Yet proportionate to the need, the ready supply of coal is greater than the ready supply of automobiles. It is not a matter of money control. It is a matter of wise method and system of business. The true course of business is to follow the fortunes and pursue the service of those who had faith in it from the beginning, the public. 
If there is any saving in manufacturing cost, let it go to the public. If there is any increase in profits, let it be shared with the public in lowered prices. If there is any improvement in the commodity, let it be made without question, for whatever the capital cost, it was first the public that supplied the capital. That is the true course for business to steer. And it is good business, for there is no better partnership a business can enter than a partnership of service with the people. It is far safer, far more durable, and more profitable than partnership with a money power. The best defense any people can have against their control by mere money is a business system that is strong and healthy through rendering wholesome service to the community. Much publicity is given to dishonest business, but this is not because there is more dishonest business than before, but because it has become such an out-of-date thing. The history of dishonesty in business in the United States begins, like the immoral methods of early competition, in the scarcity of opportunity. Dishonest business never had any excuse for existing, but there were times when it was at least understandable. Nowadays it is not even understandable. The great swindles began in an age when opportunity was scarce. Swindling is out of date today because honest opportunity is unlimited. The organization of industry to serve the people will not interfere with the profitableness of industry, as some seem to imagine. Putting right principles into our economic life will not decrease wealth, but increase it. The world as a whole is much poorer than it ought to be, because it has muddled along on one cylinder, the GET cylinder, and has not grasped in any practical way the true law of service and increase. For always builders want to build, bakers want to bake, manufacturers want to produce, railroads want to carry, working men want to work, merchants want to sell, and housewives want to buy. And why is it that sometimes all these operations seem to stop? Just because when things are going well, some men will say, This is the time to make a big haul. People begin to want what we have to sell, therefore it is a good time to boost the price. They're in the mood to buy, and they will pay more. This is criminal, just as criminal as cashing in on a war. But it springs from ignorance. A part of industry understands so little of the essential laws of prosperity that times of business revival appear like grab-bag periods, in which the highest business wisdom is to get while the getting is good. But enough men are becoming their own masters to know that bargaining and grabbing are not industry, that to grab is to kill. When all learn that profits have to be earned and not grabbed, we shall no longer have trouble with the money power or any other power. We can make prosperity continuous and universal.